0: So Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10, I'm reading from the ESV version, um, and this is God's word. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces Lord, we pray as we hear from you now through your word, through your seven Mike, prepare our hearts. Holy Spirit, fill Mike and empower him to proclaim the truths of your word for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Thanks, Shibu. Well, as uh, Shabu mentioned, my name's Mike. For those of you who don't know me, we live in a global economy, uh, a global environment, and there are many companies that want to push their... Um, their advertising on us and one of the goals that they have is to make either their name or their company logo easily identifiable. Who doesn't know the golden arches as they're driving down the road, particularly if you have children in the car? Or you could be driving down the same road and the car in front of you has a blue oval on it. We know that stands for a Ford, it's a Ford car, we know that. If I say to my wife I'm going to the hardware store, she automatically knows I'm going to Bunnings. If I say I'm going to Ikea, you know I'm coming home with something that's flat-packed, something that after a couple of hours I'll eventually get the instructions out to try and work out how to actually put it together. (laughs) We all know Apple's iconic symbol, that apple, and it's kind of had a bite taken out of it. We know what it means when we see a Facebook or Twitter icon on a web page. And what about the likes of Amazon, Google, Microsoft, or even Lego? They're easily identifiable. This week we're into one of those iconic passages in the Bible that many Christians know quite well because of the powerful imagery that it portrays, that of uh, the armour of God spiritual armor. So often when we think of spiritual warfare, our thoughts tend toward perhaps the demon-possessed person writhing on the floor, foaming at the mouth. Perhaps we've got in our mind's eye a Hollywood picture of what it might look like. Hollywood special effects, superhuman strength, projectile vomit, someone who typically overpowers the feeble attempts of some misguided individual who's trying to help them. Or perhaps we're thinking of the demon-possessed people that Jesus restored. Some with many demons, legion. Others so powerful, even the apostles couldn't cast them out. Yet can I tell you that when we see this passage that Shabu has just read to us this morning, in the right context, it is of far more relevance, of far more importance to the everyday walk of faith, than some far-off concept some of us may have only read about or heard from others or have this kind of picture in our in our minds of, of what the movies portray. As we've witnessed over the preceding months, Paul spends time in the first half of Ephesians detailing who the Christian is, blessed with every spiritual blessing, adopted into the family of God, not because of our works, not because we deserved it necessarily, but by grace through faith, United in Christ, a dwelling place for God's spirit, able to grasp the wonder of the gospel. Then more recently, we've seen Paul flesh out in the second half of his letter that because of who we are in Christ, here is what that actually looks like on a practical level. From a broad community standpoint, there should be unity in the diversity we bring as a community of God's people. This is what knowing Jesus brings to the body of the church. We should not be holding grudges, getting angry with each other, but instead have a forgiving, gracious nature as we commune one with another. Love should characterize our walk as we continue to be filled with the Spirit. On a more personal level, there is direction around the fundamental day-to-day relationships of life that reveal our true character more than anything else. We touched on that last week. Now, as Paul seeks to sum up his letter, he gives us a spiritual slap in the face. To use the vernacular, Paul's up in our grid and he's saying, Wake up, people! Why, if we are children of God, transformed by the wonder of the gospel, with God's spirit within, do we struggle to walk in a manner worthy of a follower of Jesus? Why is it even relevant to be discussing division in the church? Why are so many Christian homes a battleground, mar- marriages struggling? Why, is it some, why does it seem that some homes have such little harmony between a parent and a child? Why are the things Paul has been pointing out such a challenge to so many of us? Why does the New Testament have so much to say about these things? Because there's a battle going on that we do well to recognize. A spiritual battle we need to recognize, to identify for what it is. Yet all too often, we're ambivalent, lacking discernment, and with any real understanding of what's going on around us. So Paul begins, verse 10. Finally, he says, finally be strong in the Lord, put on the whole armor of God. I think it's relatively easy for us to see in the society that we're in the midst of The current debate and with the law changes we've seen recently, we see them for what they are. It's a spiritual battleground for for the moral compass of our society. But I also think that sometimes we forget the spiritual battle that goes on closer to home. Paul says, for our battle is not against flesh and blood. This is a battle that was first brought to man in the Garden of Eden. Satan comes to Eve and he said, did God really say is that really what God meant? And, and, and if God said that to you, maybe you've just misinterpreted what he said. The battle was first brought before man to the garden, but it began long before man even existed. Isaiah chapter 14 says, describes Satan as wanting to set himself up as the most high. Satan was the most powerful of the angels, created by God, full of wisdom and beauty, according to Ezekiel 28. But despite all of this, he wanted to set himself up as God's equal. There is a heavenly battle ensues where Satan and a third of the angels that supported him are thrown out of heaven. And ever since then, Satan has sought to undermine the work of God and by extension, the work of his people. Paul says here in in verse 11 that the devil is a planner one who is scheming against us. Remember that he has th- had thousands of years to perfect his craft. He has that combination of cleverness, of hard work, and much practice that make him such a formidable foe. Thankfully, we've not, we don't have to be ignorant of his schemes, though, because God tells us what they are. He reveals it in, in the Scriptures. We... we mentioned briefly about Adam and Eve, the first sin. But let's have a look at a few other things, the Bible reports of Satan's activities and efforts. It was he, Satan, we're told in First Chronicles chapter 21 that incited David against God to take a census of the people. God said, I don't want you to do that, David. David did what God asked him not to. Satan incited him. We learn in the book of Job that he's able to bring sickness and natural calamity that leads even to death in the case of Job and his family. Paul reports to us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 how Satan hindered his intention to visit the Thessalonian church. He disrupts the travel plans of God's servants as they go about the work of ministry. Revelation chapter 2 we read these words in the letter to the church to Smyrna Behold the devil is about to throw some of you into prison Several stories in the gospel we know speak of the devil's ability to afflict people with sickness Acts chapter 5 describes that it was Satan who enticed Ananias to lie to the Holy Spirit 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we find that he even infiltrates the church with false teachers. Those who pose as servants of righteousness. False teaching is one of his primary schemes in attacking the church. And according to Colossians chapter 2, legalism is one of the main schemes that he has in undermining the church's effectiveness. Legalism is that idea that we can improve our status with God by certain righteous beha- behaviours, by doing the right thing to somehow gain God's favour. And in the setting of our passage, we learn that one of Satan's primary efforts is to disrupt, to undermine the principal relationships of life. That's why this se- section occurs right after the instructions on household relationships. Satan intrudes on our most intimate relationships in in an attempt to destroy them, to render them ineffective. When you're in the middle of a dispute with your spouse, your kids, your work colleagues, or even with those in the church, I wonder, do you take the time to recognize the battle is not being raged? Nor is it won when you prove you're better in some way than someone else that you might be in conflict with. So Paul says, wake up, don't be naive to the enemy's schemes. At least five times he asks us to stand firm, to be aware, to keep alert as we look through this passage. Now I want to be clear, I'm in no way saying that we are not each of us accountable for our own actions, for our own sin and the choices we make. Nor am I saying that every calamity, illness, or struggle is directly attributed to Satan. Now, it's not my fault, God, Satan made me do it. None of us are without without um, excuse. But I do think we need to be clear about the battle that rages for the testimony of our God, a testimony that each Christian has the potential to either enhance or, just, or besmirch. So therefore, in verse 13... Therefore, Paul says, Take up the whole armour of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. I cannot help but feel at times we take the imagery that God that Paul gives us in the following verses uh, too literally. How many books, Sunday school lessons or pictures do we have in our minds' eye when we read the next few verses? The armour of God. We've got the picture of a soldier and he's just standing up and he's got the armour on. Sometimes I think it leads us askew in our understanding of what Paul's trying to get at. I'm sure Paul's intent was not to impress upon us the armour per se, but the importance of being prepared as every soldier, soldier is facing the battle that he's in. Neither do I think that Paul was implying the readiness for the spiritual battle every Christian faces many times, day or night, is something that you can take off and put on whenever you think you might be needing it. The battle we face is a spiritual one. The resources God gives us to overcome are spiritual, and they are available to us at any time, night or day, for it is often when we least expect or are able to cope the enemy attacks perhaps it's due to tiredness there is sadness of heart we've been hurt by something that someone has said or done it could be illness or maybe it's the exact opposite our life is in cruise control everything's going well everything's going smoothly it seems that everything we do seems to turn to gold there are any number of occurrences where our guard is let down and the enemy takes his opportunity In the context of what we've been going through in Ephesians, it's important to see Paul's warning for what it is, to understand that the power of the gospel, unity in the body of Christ, the wonder of a new life, the call to live out the gospel message in our lives, our marriages and our parent-child relationships, or our testimony in the workforce are not undermined by personality clashes, not by other people, not by outward influence, but by the battle that rages within On the spiritual realm one of the misinterpretations that stem from too literal a picture of soldiers armor is that it's cumbersome too awkward to wear all the time and so there's this inference that we should prepare ourselves for when we think we might need it and as I've just mentioned the problem with that is that many times the subtle or even upfront attacks the enemy brings take us completely by surprise We've perhaps had a really good day at work. We come home and the household seems to be at war. We've had a great time in small group. Maybe we've enjoyed church. We've just had the opportunity to catch up with family and friends and we're really encouraged as a result. And just a short while later, we wonder whether it was all a dream. I should know better, but it still takes me by surprise when after I've been speaking or perhaps we've we've, um, been at small group Perhaps as a leadership team we've had a meeting where I've left praising God for what he has or what he is doing. It still takes me by surprise when something happens that causes me to wonder how one moment can be so different to another. So what does it mean to put on the whole armour of God? In what sense should we be preparing ourselves for those unforeseen surprise spiritual battles for the hearts and minds of God's people? Let's quickly have a look at Paul's answer together. He speaks to the armour of God. Firstly, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. It's the age old question, what is truth? Now we're not naive enough here at Canterbury Gardens to think that everyone who walks through the door is a Christian. But these words are written to, to those of us that are Christians. So I want to answer this from a Christian perspective. From the Christian's perspective, this is truth. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. That is truth. Friends, when you question whether God could truly love you, when you waver as to how your shortcomings, failures or sin can ever be forgiven, if you're a person here today that is not convinced of the power of Jesus, let me say that truth is not found in what our own feeble minds portray it to be. We can be the most intelligent person on the face of the planet with an outstanding IQ. But God says that in his eyes, we're fools if we reject him. That is truth. Truth is found in and through a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ. Truth is this. He came to live as a man, experiencing life as we know it, yet was without sin, willingly going to the cross for our sakes, rising on the third day, intercessing on our behalf, and as if that's not enough, preparing a place for us. Well, Paul goes on and he he talks of Sorry, let me go back. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you consider yourself to be on help, you're the very one Jesus came to rescue. That is the truth. Jesus says, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Paul goes on and he talks about the breastplate of righteousness. There would be few Christians who have not at some point in their lives said something along these lines to themselves. How can I claim to be a Christian when I act the way I do? When I say what I say or even don't say what I should say. To be honest, I'd be concerned if these things had never crossed your mind. And it's just one of the ways that the enemy, that Satan, seeks to undermine our fruitfulness Sometimes we judge ourselves more harshly than we should because here's the truth concerning our righteousness before God. He no longer sees a sinful nature, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ when he looks upon us. Our standing before God is seen through the prism of the cross. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, For our sakes he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, our standing before God is not found in what we do, but in who we are. Adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. If we're a Christian, our righteousness is of God. It's not in our own hands. We can rest in that. He moves on and says, put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Verse 15, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The clear, clear implication here is that the gospel of peace is something we can go and be in the business of sharing with others. What other cult or religion offers the freedom and peace that the gospel of Jesus Christ does? All works based religion offers is self righteousness, and we know in our heart of hearts, we know at some point that's going to be found wanting. When we truly understand the peace, that being saved by grace brings, then the words of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, empower us to proclaim the gospel of peace. And Peter says, oh, we should always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. In a spiritual battle, the gospel of peace is a game changer. It enables us to present the wonder of God's grace to those around us. Paul goes on and he speaks of the shield of faith. We know that without faith it is impossible to please God, that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. We know that the righteous shall live by faith, and all Christians together can state the life I now live I live in the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. There are doubts, there are temptations, disappointments. Sometimes our souls are troubled, our health is affected, our relationships are on shaky ground. And yet it's at these times that our faith enables us to say, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. I am convinced that He is able to guard until that day what is entrusted to me. The strength of our faith is not in our own abilities or gifts, but in the one who sustains us by His own power and might. The strength of our faith says the same one who's been faithful in the past is the same one who's faithful today is the same one who will continue to remain faithful in the future. Paul goes on again and he speaks of a helmet of salvation. By definition, a helmet protects the essence of who we are. It is a picture of being secure in the salvation we have in Jesus. With all the false religious systems and beliefs, It is the wonder of knowing with full assurance we are saved by grace through faith, not of our own works, is the gift of God. We are his workmanship. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Paul moves on and he speaks of the sword of the spirit, which he explains is the word of God. Even God incarnate, Jesus Christ himself, used his word to refute Satan when he was tempted. Is there a better reason not to immerse ourselves in it? Is there any greater authority... Any greater word that has stood the test of time? Any book that has not been used to change more lives? Is there any piece of literature that has not brought more comfort, encouragement, conviction, revelation or wisdom? Why? What is it that makes this book so special? It's because of who the book reveals to us. How it speaks to our own state. And how God's spirit takes these words and brings them alive to us. How is it that we can read it over and over again and yet it continues to surprise us? It continues to challenge us. It always seems to be new and alive. Because we know that all scripture is God breathed. God uses it to teach us. To grow us. To transform us. Well, as we get down to verse 18, I think sometimes it's, it's a verse that's overlooked in our discussion about the armour of God. Because prayer, talking, communing with our God is like the thread that holds the armour together. Mark chapter 9, there's this story of the disciples and they come to Jesus and ask, why couldn't we cast out this particular demon out of this, this boy? Jesus said, well, this kind only comes out with prayer. He spends 40 days fasting and praying before Satan comes to to tempt him, before Satan tries to show him an easier way. Every smart soldier knows they must keep the line of communication open to their commander. God has directions for us to follow. He does this through his word, through our communing with him, as the Holy Spirit prompts us. Satan hates it when we pray. He knows prayer strengthens us and keeps us alert to his deceptions. With the full armour of God and the power of prayer, we can be ready for whatever the, uh, the enemy might throw at us. And then Paul, at, at the end of this section, verses 19 and 20, he has a personal prayer. I, I think that's a wonderful prayer to be praying for our father, fellow brothers and sisters. He says, pray for me. That I, may be giving, give, that I may be given to me an opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am, am an ambassador. I wonder when we pray for each other, do we ever pray for boldness in proclaiming Jesus to those around us? Well, as we conclude this morning, church, um, can I ask, do you recognize the spiritual battle we're in? First Peter 5.18 kind of sums it up. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. From a community perspective, we as a church must guard against the enemy's desires to make our testimony ineffective. He does this through division, through jealousy, through gossip, through false teaching, through being hung up on the small stuff. What I like to say, the colour of the carpet syndrome, causes us to forget the things that bind us together and instead focus on those small things that can so easily divide us. On a more personal level, Satan is active in the relationships within your home, at work or at school. Do you realise that the enemy is wanting to bring the battle to bear in all areas of your life? And often, so often he does this by using our own emotions against us. We've already seen earlier in Ephesians that we're told in our anger, do not sin, do not give the devil a foothold. Now, it's true, there is such a thing as righteous anger. But I can't help but feel that most, that most of man's anger invariably leads to sin. That's why the scriptures warn us about it. But there are other emotions, emotions that Satan can use against us. Fear. John tells us that there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears is not perfected in love. The pride of life gives gives the enemy a foothold. Pride in our own hearts. What about the issues of anxiety and worry? What does Jesus say? Don't worry about that stuff. I provide for the birds of the air. How will I not provide for you? He uses hard-heartedness. Jesus even accused his own disciples of hard-heartedness at times. And Satan can even use the best intentions of others to tempt us into unhealthy thinking. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus has just described what's going to happen. Described the result of his ministry. And Peter comes to Jesus and he says, that's not going to happen to you. That that won't happen. I won't allow it. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of man. Even the best intentions of people can lead us astray, can be used by the, the enemy to tempt us. The next time you're in conflict with someone, you get angry, worried, or fearful, consider how your response can bring healing to the situation or allow things to grow and fester. When you hear someone gossip about yourself, perhaps, or you've had a fight with your spouse, perhaps you've not got your own way, or even someone has given you a pat on the back, God says, be aware. Remember the power of forgiveness and the subtleties of the enemy to use your own emotions against you. God's armour points to what God gives us in Christ we have all the resources we need to overcome the spiritual attacks of the enemy yet without recognizing a real need for God's divine power wisdom and strength there is the danger that it just becomes all about us that we rely on ourselves the reality of standing for God's truth is that we can expect Satan to attack us yet the tragedy is that we can make it all too easy for the enemy by allowing our own blindness to sin and selfishness to undermine our fruitfulness. No discussion on this point, I don't think, when we're talking about spiritual warfare in this context, is, out com- is complete without considering the words of James chapter 4. Can you please just quickly, as we close, turn with me to James chapter 4. James, James refers to the turmoil of the inner person, a turmoil that gives the enemy a great head start in the battle that he brings to our doorstep. James chapter 4, from verse 1. Let's read what it says. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Now please bear in mind as we read this, James is talking to Christians. This is not addressed to non-Christians. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Are there things in there, things in your heart, that's giving the enemy a foothold, a stronghold that you might need to put right? We as a church ask that you seek help. When one part of the body suffers, it affects all of us. And I just want to finish on a high now. Because praise God, the war is won. The cross of Jesus Christ won victory over sin and its accompanying, accompanying sentence of spiritual death. That is the truth. God gives us the opportunity to see the beginning and the end. Jesus said he has overcome the world. We're told that he has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. We're told, little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is within the world. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power over death, that is the devil. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transformed us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And finally, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, the war is won. We know the end. Yet there are skirmishes all around us and you and I are right in the middle. How we resist the enemy will determine the extent that our testimony results in God's glory. The gospel message being heard and the church becoming a beacon for God's truth to be proclaimed. Let's uh, pray together now. Father God, I want to thank you for uh, the strength that we can take, for the encouragement that we can take in knowing that you are with us. That he who is within us is greater than he who is within the world. That you would open our eyes to the spiritual battle around us. That we would recognise the role we can play in giving the enemy a foothold. That by your spirit you would empower us to put right those things that you might desire us to this morning. And by your grace you would allow us to recognise the battle when it's on our doorstep. That we would always be ready acknowledging who you are, how we stand in you and from where our help comes from. I ask these things in and through the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.